0: Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. Hey, good morning,
1: everyone. Let's, uh, let's pray as we um, continue in worship please pray with me father we are so thankful for the chance to gather outside on such a beautiful day we are thankful for the chance to gather with friends um, from our campus and from the other campus and uh, lord we just pray that you would bless this time we pray that you would bless the reading of your word and god that you would be glorified in us we pray these things in jesus name amen well, good morning. Uh, welcome to our uh, all-church gathering here at Crosswinds Church. We are excited that you are here with us, that you made the drive either north or south uh, to join us today. As you know, we are a multi-site church. We talk a lot about that. And uh, this morning is really just a tangible expression of the fact that we are a multi-site church. Uh, consider this like a giant family reunion. And like every family reunion, there are those uh, crazy cousins on the other side of the family that you get to talk to. And, and ba- based off of where everyone's sitting right I'm wondering if Kurt and I are those crazy cousins because of the massive gap in between us, Uh, but we are excited that you are here with us. We're excited for the chance to partner together uh, for the sake of our communities and for the spread of the gospel here in Northwest Iowa. This morning we're going to just share a brief passage with you from John chapter 8 and uh, it's a very interesting, one of the most unusual passages in all of scripture and that's not because necessarily what it says, but because there's a large debate over whether it belongs in the Bible. If you look at your Bible and you notice John chapter 8, there's a footnote that says some of the oldest manuscripts actually don't include these verses. Now we're not going to get into a giant debate or, or into the reasons why, this, uh, why we're preaching through this um, because we, we look at, at the way Jesus acts throughout Scripture and we see that he acts with the same sort of compassion. The same sort of relating with both the religious leaders and with this woman who we are about to meet. And so we can be confident that this is a historical uh, truth. This is something that actually happened. And so Pastor Kurt is going to read to us
0: uh, from John chapter 8. If you have your outlines, you can follow along with me. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. And early in the morning he came again to the temple. And all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees, they brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? They said this to test him so that they might have some charge to bring against him. But Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and he said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Why did the ancient copyists want to make sure that this particular part of Jesus' life was included in the Gospel of John? What is it that it tells us that they wanted to make sure that we knew that we needed for our life ultimately today? Well, to answer that question, I want you to uh, use your imaginations. Use your imaginations to travel from the green cornfields of Iowa All the way back to the dusty brown roads of the ancient city of Jerusalem. And reimagine how this whole thing took place. We know it took place during something called the Feast of Booths. And in this feast, what happened is people poured into the city of Jerusalem from all over the country. But in particular, there were men that came. You see, the Mosaic law had stipulated that all men within a 20-mile radius of the city of Jerusalem were to be present in the city for this festival. So the city was filled with men, single men, lonely men.
1: The Jewish holiday of the Feast of Booze was essentially a time to remember the ways that God had provided for the people of Israel, both in the past as well as in the present. Think of it like a modern day uh, or our modern day uh, Thanksgiving we go back in time and we look at the story of the Exodus, we, are, uh, we can remember that the people of Israel were slaves to the Egyptians for hundreds of years. God intervened miraculously and delivered them out of the hands of the Egyptians. For the next 40 years, they spent those days in the wilderness in between Israel and Egypt. And every single day, God would provide them with food, with bread that he rained down from heaven. During this time, because they were in the wilderness, they actually dwelt in tents or booths. It was another way of reminding themselves of God's not yet promise fulfilled. The fact that they hadn't yet reached God's promised land. After 40 years of God providing them with food each and every day, they entered into the promised land. God stopped raining bread from heaven. Now they could grow their own crops. They no longer lived in booths and in tents because they could dwell in houses. But that didn't mean that God had stopped providing for them. He just provided for them in a different way. Indeed, as the people of Israel would gather each and every year for the Feast of Booths, it was a tangible reminder to them that God provided for them. They would gather each and every year after the harvest as a reminder of God's provision for them in that harvest. To make it even more tangible, they would dwell in these booths. They would weave together branches of different types of trees. These were flimsy structures, not something that you would buy at REI or at Shields. They were flimsy without a lot of privacy. And it was a reminder to themselves of God's providence and his provision. For them, you can find these tents, these booths everywhere throughout Jerusalem, on every single street and every single alley, even on top of roofs. These filled Jerusalem.
0: Now, for many of the people who are there in the city, their hearts were filled with gratitude. Obviously, gratitude for what God had done in the past by taking care of their ancestors and bringing them through the wilderness. In gratitude, For how God had taken care of them in the present. By giving them another year of good harvests and food and prosperity. But the problem is that in these kind of holidays that are celebrated year after year. All of a sudden they start to become uh, less significant. They become less meaningful. And to be honest... For many people in the city of Jerusalem, this holiday had deteriorated into simply a week long drinking party with little spiritual significance. I imagine that uh, as the rays of dawn broke the darkness of that light of, of that night you would find the city all the population in these little flimsy little unprivate structured tents that were woven together they were scattered everywhere you'd find people sleeping in them and they're sleeping off their <coughs> excuse me they're sleeping off their hangover from the night before they're groggy and they're tired no one quite wants to get up but the religious elite they weren't like that in the morning at the first crack of dawn, they weren't tired and exhausted from a party the night before. You can rest assured that they were up at the crack of dawn on their way to morning worship at the temple. And to get there, they would have to weave their way through these streets covered with tents and drunken partygoers. This is a perfect place for them to develop one of these uh, I'm better than you are attitudes. Look what I'm doing and look what you're not doing. Sort of a self-righteousness. That's what we know about the religious leaders and what we know about the scene. But what do we know about the woman? Quite honestly, we don't know much. We just know that as the rays of dawn broke the darkness of of night, she woke up that day in a flimsy tent structure with very little privacy. And at that moment, she was actually in the very act of adultery when the religious leaders apparently ran across her. And who was she? Well, some people think she was a prostitute, but she wasn't. She couldn't have been, because the religious leaders said that the Mosaic Law prescribed that she would be killed by stoning. That was a penalty that was actually reserved for an engaged woman who was being unfaithful, or who had been unfaithful to her spouse. Apparently that's what she was. Now we don't know where her spouse was. Perhaps he was a merchant. And in those days, merchants traveled for long periods of time, weeks or months away. Maybe he was away in Egypt or Syria, trading and hoping to make a good future for his future family. But what we do know is that he had left her alone. For what, truly was one of the happiest times of the year and she was without the one she loved she was alone
1: you know I imagine that as she was alone her heart was filled with loneliness didn't have anyone to talk to was left all alone and so just like everyone else she decided to go to one of these parties one night during the feast of booths and as she's at one of these parties, a party that was probably filled with flowing wine, her gaze met this man across the room, straight out of a romantic comedy, tall, dark, and handsome, and they began to talk. And as they were talking, they continued talking, and the hours flew by until it was all of a sudden the end of the party. And as the end of the party came, They had a decision to make. And so they ended up at his tent, at his booth, without much privacy. And in their weakness, John 8, and our imaginations can tell us the rest of what happened.
0: That was the time when the scribes and their religious leaders ran across her when she was in the very act of adultery. And I can imagine how this would have happened because somebody must have known her. Somebody must have been able to recognize her as they walked by to see this taking place. One of the religious leaders in full-throated condemnation said her name with great force. And she shuddered. What happened to the man? We don't know. Apparently he bolted and he escaped. But she was left in the tent, clutching for her clothes. And like a pack of ravenous wolves, the religious leaders circled the tent around her. Can you picture her in that moment? Can you picture the the tears that would be streaming down her head as these holy men that she had always looked up to and thought were so wonderful? were there around her in her shame and they had, were beginning to traumatize her. She had been lonely. It, it, it was late and she had been drinking and she couldn't think clearly And it was tired, early morning hours and she had gone with her emotions. But now with the, the brightness of the sun like today, she could finally see the darkness of her sin of the night and she was filled with shame. But the spiritual leaders, they weren't helping her in that moment. They, weren't, they were hurting her. They weren't comforting her. They were shaming her. They were seeking to destroy her. We know they, they took her from where they found her. And they, they moved her and they, all the way to where the temple was, where Jesus was teaching. I picture they herded her like an animal through the streets, up one alley and and down the next, as she pouted and wept and cried in shame. And they struck her. It doesn't say they struck her with their hands, but I believe they probably struck her with their words. Insults. Whore. Slut. Cheap. The tears streamed down her face in shame. And I picture that as she was going down the road and they're hurting her in that way and she's crying, that people are looking out their windows in the early morning and they're seeing her. They're seeing her and they're hearing about her sin the night before. And now everybody knows. Now everybody knows what she's done. There's no hope. She thought maybe there was a chance that her fiancé would have forgiven her and they could have restored this now that she had made this impulsive and sinful decision. But how would he forgive her now? Because she was filled with shame. Everybody knew about her. Her dreams of one day becoming a respectable wife, one day becoming a respectable mother, were all being taken away. These holy men... She thought she should look up to. They were sucking out of her, her very life, like a leech. She knew there'd be nothing left of her but an empty shell of existence.
1: As they brought her to the temple, they encountered Jesus. Ah, yes, Jesus, they thought, the carpenter's son from Nazareth. This is Jesus, the backwater Galilean, Jesus, the one who didn't show them any respect as the so-called religious authorities. They may have hated this woman, but they hated Jesus far, far more. The text tells us that they actually didn't have the most pure motives as they brought this woman before Jesus. They weren't really concerned about cleaning up Jerusalem morally. They actually just wanted to catch Jesus in the middle of a trap. Pastor Kurt told us that the law uh, explained that the penalty for being caught in adultery as an engaged man or woman is death. And so they brought this woman before Jesus and said, this is what she's done. What are you going to do? As they brought this woman before Jesus, they thought that they had him trapped. After all, on one side, if he said, well, let's follow what the law tells us to do, well, then he would lose the crowds because of his lack of compassion. On the other side, if he decided to show her compassion and just pass over what she had done, then he would lose his title, his authority as a religious teacher because he didn't trust and value the law. What would he do? What would you do in this situation? there was silence that fell over the crowd as they threw this woman before Jesus and as they watched what Jesus would do he simply did something unexpected he knelt to the ground completely silent and with his finger began to write in the dirt the text doesn't tell us what he wrote we can only speculate but we do know one thing for sure. For the first time, everyone's eyes was off of this woman, and they were on Jesus and on the finger of God.
0: We don't know what he wrote, but a friend of mine has a theory, and I sort of like it. My friend thinks that maybe Jesus reached back down the quarters of time and brought forward the names of women that these religious leaders had been with in the past in an inappropriate way. And on the ground, he he was writing their names. And these men who were feeling so self-righteous started to turn red, started to turn beat with shame because they realized that they had sinned too. We don't know what Jesus wrote on the ground, but we do know what Jesus said. Because he straightened up and he said to them, The one who is without sin, you be the one to throw the first stone. And he went back with his finger and returned to writing on the ground. Isn't that the way it is with Pharisees? Not just Pharisees in the ancient world, but Pharisees today in the modern world. A Pharisee is sort of one of those people who's quick to see the sin in others but slow to see the sin in themselves. Quick to say what's wrong with them but not what I have to focus on and improve and repent of. The Pharisee And each one of us is real good at seeing sin and error. But completely avoids the painful introspection of looking ourselves and looking our souls in the mirror. And the Bible tells us that one by one, beginning with the oldest down to the youngest, these religious leaders walked away. They realized that none of them were in the position to throw a stone against her. To throw a stone that day. So he said to the woman, Woman, where are they? Has anyone condemned you? She said, No one, sir.
1: I imagine that she was completely and utterly overwhelmed. Here she was, standing before these men that she had respected her entire life. These men who were extremely moral, extremely righteous, who knew the law better than anyone else, and yet they had tried to condemn her to death but now they were gone and in their place was simply jesus and suddenly she was even more afraid after all this was a man who seemed to be more moral who seemed to be more righteous who knew god's law even better than those who had tried to condemn her what would he do to her surely he would punish her after all jesus was the only one that day who was able to condemn her Jesus was the only one that day who was without sin and able to cast the first stone. Indeed, today, Jesus is the only one who is able to condemn us as well. But he didn't, and he doesn't. Instead, Jesus simply asks the woman, where are they? Has anyone condemned you? And she says, no one, my Lord. And he says, well, me neither. Neither do I condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. How is it that Jesus is able to say this? How is it that Jesus is able to make this declaration? Does sin not matter to Jesus? Does Jesus not see this woman's sin as serious?
0: Many people think that this is evidence that maybe Jesus doesn't care about sexual sin. That's not the truth. I think Jesus cares very much about it. Why could he let her just walk away? Well, let me tell you something. What Jesus did is he ultimately went and took her sin and put it upon him. He loved her so much that he is the one who ultimately died in her place for her sin. You see, Jesus didn't come to be like a scribe and Pharisee and to condemn us. Jesus came to forgive us of our sin. And today, it is so easy for us to be just like scribes and be just like Pharisees, be quick to condemn, quick to berate, quick to humiliate when we see the sins of others, but we are quick to ignore the sins of ourselves. We're called to be more like Jesus. Jesus didn't come to condemn us of our sin. He came to forgive us of our sin. And he calls us to do the same when we see others. To forgive them, not condemn them. But that doesn't mean that sin doesn't matter. We point them to Jesus who loves them so much that he died to pay the cost for their sin. Maybe some of you this morning are here and you can relate with this woman caught in the very act of adultery. Maybe it was not adultery last night that you were involved in, but there's a sin in your life that's dark, it's serious, that while you have a smile on the outside of your face, you're filled with shame on the inside of your heart. You don't want anyone to know the real you. Maybe it's not a a huge sin, but it's a constant, repeated sin that you find yourself giving into again and again. And you say deep inside your heart, Jesus, what do you really feel about me? Jesus, are you going to condemn me? This story, it tells us how Jesus feels about us. He didn't come to condemn us. He came to forgive us. He loves you. He loves you so much that He offers to take your sin and put it upon Him and to pay for it in full through His death. This morning, if you are somebody who is filled with sin or guilt and shame, or you have that lingering question about how God is dealing with your repeated failures and repeated sins, I exhort you, Run to Jesus. He loves you. He forgives you. And his words to you are the same words that he had to the woman. Neither do I condemn you. Go now and sin no more. Let's pray.
1: Father, we confess that all too often we can be Pharisees all too often that we can identify the sins of others and yet just pass over our own sins and lord we ask for forgiveness for that god we pray that we would be compassionate that we would be people that are like jesus people who when they see sin respond with grace and forgiveness and point people to you god i pray that you would
0: make us more like jesus And Jesus, others of us can this this morning relate to this woman caught in the act of adultery. Nobody knows it besides us, but we've really blown it. We've sinned in a major way, and some of us have sinned repeatedly. Thank you for this story that tells us how you feel about us in spite of our sin. That you love us more than we can imagine in spite of our sin. You died for us. You forgive us. Jesus, that is the message of the book, the Bible, about your incredible love to take away our sin. That is the gospel message that we share. And Lord, we pray that on both campuses, that is the gospel message that we preach in Spencer and in Spirit Lake to your honor and to your glory that we would always be able to say, neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. Because Jesus, He didn't come to condemn us, but to forgive us. And all God's people said, Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us. And may God continue to enrich your life.